Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, today, we're turning our attention to Russia, um, and notably from September 17th to September 19th, Russia held elections for the State Duma, which is the lower house of the national legislature. And while the Duma is sometimes dismissed as a relatively powerless political institution in Russia, the outcome of these elections do matter for the Kremlin, especially given the Kremlin's interest in maintaining a pliant legislature ahead of presidential elections in 2024. We also know the elections mattered for the Kremlin because they uh, have become such a major focal point for the regime, spurring a massive crackdown on Russian civil society in the last year or so. The regime has ruthlessly targeted investigative journalists and opposition members who have had to flee the country, including one of our guests today. The election, which many observers note was marred by irregularities, uh, and especially the crackdown that preceded it has raised real concerns about Russia, where Russia is headed domestically. Many Russia-watching analysts have been hesitant to call Russia an outright dictatorship, preferring terms like managed democracy, uh, but I would say the events over the last year put any such notions to rest and, as I noted, raise real questions about Russia's domestic situation. And so today on uh, this edition of Brussels Sprouts, we're excited to welcome both Dmitry Gudkov and Maria Snegovaya to the podcast in order to discuss the Duma elections and really this broader trend towards worsening Russian repression. So Dmitry, Maria, welcome to both of you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Yep, by background, just to give a very uh, quick introduction to, of our guests, um, Dmitry is a Russian opposition politician and a former deputy for a just Russia, from which he was expelled after being elected to the Opposition Coordination Council. In 2014, he was one of the four deputies that did not approve the annexation of Crimea. At the beginning of 2021, he announced that he intended to run for the Russian parliament again, but he was prohibited from running. And I note he also voted against the adoption law in 2012. Uh, and Maria is a postdoctoral fellow in political science at Virginia Tech University and a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University. And her research interests include party politics and political behavior, as well as Russia's domestic and foreign policy. So two amazing guests uh, to help us kind of think through and better understand what's happening in Russia today. Um, Maria, maybe I can start with you and just to have your insight and perspective on why these Duma elections mattered at all. I mean, there obviously is this perception, I think, among many political analysts that elections in authoritarian regimes like Russia don't matter. Um, but, you know, how would you characterize the significance of the elections um, that, that were just held over the past weekend? Uh, yes, I'm quite familiar with the opinion that the election uh, did not matter at all. It's quite, it's quite popular in Russia as well. Many people always call for boycotting the election, which they be, by definition uh, are legitimate and whatnot. All of that is true because autocracy, which Russia is, by definition, autocrats do not lose elections. It's, it's a basic definition. So if we believe that Russian autocracy, I think there's little doubt about that. Uh, yes, uh, it's unlikely that the elections will fundamentally uh, change uh, the uh, distribution of power in uh, contemporary Russia. 
However, the elections do usually represent a challenge uh, for autocratic regimes. We know that from multiple scholarship on the topic. Uh, it's really uh, it's a really good coordinating point for opposition and usually allows for some collective action. Even usually, especially in situations like uh, today's Russia, when dissatisfaction with the status quo is really high and there's a lot of uh, protest uh, sentiment in the uh, society, uh, usually uh, the, the election actually will mobilize the opposition, the autocrats will then rig the election, and the people will then uh, mobilize. Uh, we actually witnessed that uh, firsthand last year in Belarus. That's exactly uh, what happened. And uh, uh, Russia actually is following the same uh, route. Uh, therefore, the elections is always interesting and they should never be dismissed, even in autocracies. Not to mention that in the past, uh, Russia's opposition has actually uh, had quite tremendous successes. Like in 2019, Moscow Duma election, uh, Alexei Navalny's smart vote campaign has been able to allow non-United Russia, non-Prem, like non, the candidates uh, who were the strongest opposition to the United Russia candidates, uh, almost half of them, uh, they got almost 50% of uh, Moscow, they had a little bit short of 50%. So the election matter, and uh, at some point, especially when, uh, if the country continues to go down the same route, uh, with economic stagnation, growing dissatisfaction, lack of, elite, uh, of the change in the political system, they will definitely at some point potentially lead to countrywide protest, if not more. Uh, this particular election is interesting since I think there have been since some major developments. Nobody's doubting, once again, that uh, Russia is not a democracy. Uh, but what we've seen is that the authorities uh, really had reasons to be really scared uh, about the results. Uh, the unprecedented level of repressions that preceded this election really indicated anxiety on the side of the authorities. And now we know why. Uh, the United Russia really uh, only got, uh, based on the independent estimates, about uh, maybe maximum 40% of the vote. The rest of the, the other numbers, it's will receive the supermajority because uh, the nature of the Russian regime as uh, other political scientists like Regina Smith have pointed out, is that they are able to convert this 30% approval that they probably hold across the society into supermajority votes. And this is how they rule the country. Uh, and how did, it, did they do it this time? Uh, this time they actually were forced to use a new uh, fraud technology because the old ones do not work. That's the, I think that's a great result if anything for the opposition because they actually forced the Kremlin to come up with a new uh, fraudulent strategy which is uh, called electronic voting. Uh, in Moscow, for example, the candidates backed by the smart vote campaign had been leading in through in-person vote until the electronic results, the electronic vote results had been published, which suddenly gave all of the advantage to fundamental, crucial advantage to the United Russia candidate and uh, fundamentally shifted uh, the election. Uh, that's, a new, that's a new development, but it's a development that the authorities were forced to adopt because the, all the strategies no longer work. And I think that's one of the key takeaways. And of course, uh, the second one is actually, I think I would also kind of treat that as um, uh, the signal of the strength of the opposition. For the first time in 16 years, we have the um, uh, fifth party uh, potentially making it to the parliament. It's called New People. And it's supposed to represent this business-minded, more modern middle-class white-collar constituencies, uh, which I think reflects the realization on the side of the Kremlin that a large, growingly large share of the Russian society has not been represented in the state Duma before. So now they have to come up with a proxy party, which of course is not a real opposition, but nonetheless, at least some would aims to represent these groups. Uh, yet again, a new development that reflects the growing strength 
of their position in the Russian society. Thank you for that, Maria. Um, Dimitri, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about kind of your reactions to the election. I mean, as Maria was saying, United Russia, you know, likely didn't get much more than 30% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the mood inside Russia, why support for United Russia is so low? Um, and it, it kind of, what was the context in this election of this election? And um, any reactions, kind of what was your reaction to what you saw in the election? Yes, I absolutely agree with Maria. So we can't, the, the election is not a proper definition for, for, the, uh, for the events happened in our country. It's not election, of course. It's some strange procedure of reappointing of new Putin Duma. But I would like to start with the, uh, with the mending of Russian constitution because it was the, uh, the start of the, the new change in our country. Because uh, Putin is going to, to rule forever. And uh, last year, um, the Russian parliament voted for the new amendment of the constitution that allows Putin to run for the Two more, ter two more turns, yes, uh, in 2024 and uh, then in 2013. So, uh, and this election, it's just the part of this transit. So some people calls it, uh, call it transit, but it's transit from Putin to Putin. Uh, and uh, of course, the Russian authorities, uh, did everything possible to get rid of all uh, strong opposition figures. Uh, the first, uh, they started with the poisoning of Alexei Navalny last summer, uh, because uh, Alexei uh, managed to create a very strong structure um, for elections, uh, for political activism in our country. And uh, uh, he launched a very the powerful YouTube channel. Uh, now, it, 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 for example, his uh, video about uh, his investigation about Putin's deal uh, uh, on the uh, Black Sea uh, gathered more than 110 million of views in, in YouTube. Can you imagine? So it's a very powerful media. And of course, um, there was a decision to, uh, to poison Navalny. And uh, I have no doubts that it was uh, organized by the uh, Russian security services. So the next step was to, um, to imprison or to, uh, to squeeze out uh, Russian politicians. Squeeze, squeeze out the country uh, uh, in order to uh, make it possible for the uh, candidates from United Russia to win elections in the constituency and uh, the party elections. Um, I can say that all strong, all key position figures, all key candidates who could win in the elections were uh, not allowed to participate uh, so just, uh, I'm not in Russia, and I had the opportunity to win uh, elections in my constituency where I had 
25% uh, according to polls, and it's 10% uh, uh, more than the United Russia candidate had. Uh, so that's why they uh, launched the criminal case, initiated a criminal case against me and my aunt organization. So this case accuses me uh, of allegedly unpaid uh, rent of the room owed by my aunt's organization six years ago. But uh, there were 15 raids uh, within this case, and uh, me uh, and I spent 20, 48 hours in the custody. In my aunt, I had to spend 48 hours with the real kill killer in the same cell. Uh, it was uh, the end of June. So I was forced to leave the country because they took my aunt as a hostage. Uh, many candidates supported uh, by Navalny's team were also um, uh, not, not in the ballot uh, uh, due to different reasons. Uh, some of them had to flee Russia. And uh, of course, now we have we get the same Duma, where the United Russia has a majority, constitutional majority, uh, where the Communist Party has uh, something around 20% of uh, mandates. So, yes, we have a new party, but it's not clear now because they have 5.3%, and they, of course, they uh the threshold is five percent and the this party can be represented in the parliament but the decision will be taken uh on friday it was reported by the central Com electoral commission uh i think that um this duma will be participating in the in the transit and uh, we will not see any independent candidate independent deputy in this Duma. And the uh, Russian regime is preparing to this, uh, to, to this future transit. And I think that um, uh, provided that provided that uh, the security forces maintain the victory of the United Russia this time, so this strategy will be um, uh, will be used in the next presidential elections. I think that the, the crackdown and the repression will be uh, more tough in, in our country. Uh, I think that we will have new uh, laws like. Uh, the law of uh, undesirable organization and the law of uh, the uh, foreign agent law. Uh, so, and we will have a new campaign against uh, Russian journalists, political activists, and all independent uh, people in our country who are against the regime. So. Uh, I think that we will have a hard time for people who want changes in our country. So, of course, these elections were falsified. And uh, we have a lot of video from uh, different regions where uh, the results were cooked and uh, where they 
the rigged elections. So uh, you can just compare the, the real rating of the United Russia is about 30%, maybe 35%. But the, the party who, party that has just one third of support uh, gets more than two thirds of mandates, two thirds of seats in the parliament. And I think that it's uh, like uh, clearly demonstrated that all uh, process were falsified in our country. Um, I think that the regime is preparing to the new wave of the crackdown uh, till the 2024. It's a real problem for Putin because his popularity is going down because uh, the living standards um, uh, living standards of Russia have been declining for the last seven years. Yeah, just declining, yes. Sorry for my English. <laughs> no worries at all. Yeah. So Very yes, the, the living standards has been declining since 2014 after the annexation of Crimea because we have a, the, the flight of capital, uh, the lack of investments, and we have a lot of problems with Russian economy because uh, if you have no fair uh, court system, uh, you will never get new investment because no one, no one wants to invest in the country where he can't uh, protect his money in the court. So um, <clears throat> uh, I think that we will see a new wave of migration, political migration. Uh, I think that hundreds of people will be forced to to leave R Russia because of the uh, because of the repression, uh, because of the new uh, new laws like the new uh, the law of undesirable organization. For example, if you participate in the work of the undesirable organization, you will be imprisoned uh, up to six years of you will get up to six years of prison. If you are a foreign agent, if you're labeled as a foreign agent, so you will have a lot of problems with um, Russian tax uh, service and uh, you can't work in the country. You have to, to report uh, every, uh, every three months of your incomes, of your, uh, how you spend money, how you make money, just, and it's a, it's a real problem. And I think that not only political activists will flee the country. I think that uh, the journalists as well, and some other representatives of civil uh, of, of uh, civil society. I want to, Maria, and we'll, we will we'll want to talk about what it means for Europe and the United States and in the in those relationships. But really briefly, because Maria, you wrote a, a really great piece in the Monkey Cage in Washington Post back in August, kind of talking about and characterizing kind of the scale of this crackdown and what what you think is driving it. I mean, I think there were some people who maybe thought that this was this repressive wave was you know primarily about the Duma elections. And then it raised questions, okay, once we get through the Duma elections, might it 
at least stabilize. But as Dimitri is arguing, no, it, it may be more about 2024. And I think as you wrote in your piece, Maria, a lot about of it is the Kremlin looking at what's happening in Belarus and making sure that they're kind of, you know, protest proofing their regime. So now, you know, they have the color revolutions and now they see what happened in Belarus and they look at those examples and they want to close down the avenues, you know, for contestation. So, I mean, maybe just, so take what Dimitri said and kind of give us, paint a picture of like, you know, the scale of this repressive crackdown and what you think is driving it and whether or not now that the elections are behind the Kremlin, it can at least, you know, obviously they're not going to unroll anything because that's slippery ground for an authoritarian regime, but, you know, will it continue or can, will we reach a new plateau? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Andrea. And thank you, Dimitri. Of course, I agree with most of uh, what he has said. Uh, and uh, uh, most important question here, yeah, uh, when did this all start? And what was the trigger for this repressive wave exactly? Mostly to understand for us where we're going next uh, and our repression is going to uh, stop as a result of this um, uh, election victory form, uh, victory, quote unquote. So uh, I would say I. I'd say it's a perfect storm situation where you face declining erosion of the authorities rating, which makes the election important, of course, because they want to win. And they, as I said before, and Dmitry said, uh, were, uh, again, uh, this time implementing unprecedented level of fraud and as well as new types of fraud. Like electronic voting uh, is the new thing that they have to, so they're innovating about the way they go, uh, they, they go and fraud and fake the election, which is interesting development and forced, as I said, partly forced by the changing realities on the ground and the strategies of the Russian opposition. But of course, uh, it's not at all the election, the electoral situation is not all the story, because again, in that piece, I, I argue uh, that they could have they, they would fake it easily and they knew that and we witnessed that yesterday. So they obviously the repressive wave that we have been witnessing for the last year cannot only be explained by the Kremlin's desire to win the election. They could have won it easily just by drawing the numbers, which they eventually did. Uh, so first of all, the question is what is unique about this repressive wave? Like uh, Russians have been you know, living under this repressive uh, conditions for a while. So why being surprised with a new uh, repressive wave? Uh, my answer is that it's absolutely unprecedented, even by Russia's own standards, and the bar is fairly high. We all, I think, agree on that. But uh, in the past, and I myself and many other uh, scholars have actually studied uh, the nature of repressions in Putin's system, uh, they used to be very selective. Uh, so you, uh, I don't know, arrest one person, and everybody's afraid, uh, partly uh, because of the new media information media environment. Sergey Gurev, then Tresman have an excellent article about that, about information autocrats, uh, but also because of Russia's history and Russians get the hint fairly easily. We remember still, you know, how things used to be uh, during the Soviet time, so we get the hint. Uh, however, somehow that is no longer enough for the Kremlin. The selective repressions no longer work, or at least they're not deemed um, um, sufficient. And uh, in the last year, what we witnessed is the scale of repression, which no longer be considered isolated or selective. They actually target all segments of the Russian society uh, this time around, including uh, not just political opponents or political activists, but also journalists, lawyers, uh, activists, and even uh, the universities, uh, and essentially all the segments that are con considered to be uh, the modernized segments of the Russian population, the Russian future, the civil society, because the civil society is recognized as a threat 
uh, by the Kremlin. So why does the Kremlin view uh, the Russian society today as the threat? Uh, I argue, and that actually resonates with what uh, Dmitry said, the election per se is not uh, the only reason. As a matter of fact, we had two triggers. First of all, of course, Belarus. Um, we know, as a matter of fact, this excellent analysis on this topic by Kit Darden, among others, who showed that uh, historically, and not just in Russia, but even before during the Soviet times, every uh, wave of mass public mobilization in uh, communist or Soviet post, uh, space, post-communist or post-Soviet space now, uh, has always been followed by a wave of tightening screws domestically, uh, because the Kremlin is always very, very uh, scared that uh, the Russians will also learn and throw some lessons from their examples from the outside, which, which they do, which is absolutely right. Uh, because we know that even the Russian example was very, very inspiring for many Russians. I'm sure that Dmitry will agree with me. Uh, but the second factor, of course, is that that really, uh, and this possibility of the mass protests and uh, the growing resentment, the declining living standards that media has emphasized, they all really strongly conflict with this Kremlin's commitment, uh, the current elite's commitment to hold on to power indefinitely. This is why one and only goal uh, that they have, and they're really, really committed to it. Uh, and that goal, uh, we have witnessed it, uh, has manifested itself in the constitutional changes in 2020, uh, really done, again, uh, mass, uh, the mass scale uh, fraud, which allowed Putin to stay in power up until 2036, potentially indefinitely. Uh, and of course, as Dmitry has emphasized, uh, this electoral campaign today, the election results and everything that's going on, the repressions should be viewed as a precondition for us to get the hint, Putin is not living, he's staying forever, and we just, we have to learn to deal with it, right? Don't try to rebel and uh, resist. Uh, but most importantly, I would say that the constitutional amendments, the way they've been implemented and what they mean, and they mean essentially one autocrat in power uh, forever uh, for the duration of his lifetime. It's a new type of the regime. And we actually have an uh, interesting um, article uh, with Kirill Rogov, a really great political scientist in Russia, where we show that even for autocracies, terms matter. It matters how long a, a ruling uh, incumbent is allowed to stay in power. Uh, like look at China, like when they had the alternation of ruling guy in power, they were actually more or less autocratic <laughs> than they become once uh, uh, they started like uh, messing uh, with that um, limitation, with that constraint. Same in Russia. Russia used to belong to a different type of autocracies until 2020, but after 2020, all the masks are off uh, and we are dealing with really uh, very different type of autocracy, much, much hardcore. And in those autocracies, the institution, institutional quality, unfortunately, is much worse. All of that indicates, uh, all of that, unfortunately, is a very bad news uh, for Russians. The repressions will continue. Uh, Russia will continue going down that Belarusian path. Uh, there will be more uh, attacks on the civil society. And uh, the Kremlin will no longer uh, you know, care about this image of this sovereign democracy or hybrid regime or some kind of nuanced approach to uh, essentially faking the electoral results. No, it will be very uh, brutal and blunt. Uh, because the masks are off and Russia now is a different type of the system than it used to be before 2020. Well, thank you both uh, for those uh, very just masterful and very detailed interventions on a topic that, as I think about our Brussels sprouts listeners, you know, we're, uh, we're all very interested in this. And I think we're learning as we go along uh, from you all. And I really, really appreciate that. But you know, I, I, in listening to what you have to say, uh, if I were in the White House right now and I was working on advising uh, Biden on what to say about this, uh, 
you know, I'm I'm wrestling with how do I how do I tell of the American people if I were writing a paper for Biden, talking points, this type of thing, how can I how can I convey to the American people the significance of this and therefore what I, Joe Biden, plan to do about it? Because um, as you you know, as you mentioned, Maria, there's there's not much that, that you can do about it. I mean, we're stuck with this. Uh, and we're just going to have to manage this relationship with this autocrat. But, but uh, I, I, I would think that if I wrote that, Biden would say to me, "Sorry, but I'm not going to just sit here and manage this. I'm. We have to be more proactive than that." And so, what, what, what is that? What, what does more proactive look like? What would you put into the talking points for Biden to use with the American people, talking about the significance of this election, what it means for the American people? And then what would you advise Biden that he could do about it? I mean, um, I, I just don't, I just don't. No, Maria, you go first, then Dimitri, uh, over to you. And then I've got a separate question for Dimitri on another topic, but Maria, go ahead and start. Uh, thank you, Jim, for a really important question. I think it's on everybody's mind these days, right? And I have to say, personally, I feel uh, as a Russian expert, I, I don't feel like me, as part of the Russian community has done enough uh, to convince the Biden administration about the importance of what's going on in the region. I'm not very satisfied so far with the response that we witnessed uh, from the administration, whether it has to do with the Nord Stream 2 or Navalny's poisoning and whatnot. And unfortunately, there's some degree of continuity, I think, in the US decision uh, policy making uh, that views China as the main threat and the main challenge long-term, and also thinks that it is somehow possible to take away the Russian elites, like a way to draw them away from China, back into the US uh, focus. I think that's a very mistaken uh, view. Unfortunately, in light with everything, everything I've described, we've described uh, before, uh, Russian elites view their survival, hold on to power with the fundamental strategic number one goal. And they view uh, the West uh, as fundamentally being in conflict, Western societies and transatlantic lands conflicting with that view because eventually Russia being part of the West, uh, collaborating with the US and Europe will eventually create this issue of democratic transition, which is not an option uh, for the Kremlin. They view associating themselves to China as one of the part of their survival strategy because China is not going to bother about democratic uh, freedoms and human rights uh, in Russia. They have other agenda. Uh, this is why uh, I think the Russian elites uh, are not, it's not possible to get them, uh, take, take them away uh, from China and draw back into the US focus. I think there must be much stronger commitment uh, to, um, on the US administration, understanding of that issues, and also uh, really attempted attempts to prevent these uh, horrible things that are happening in Russia in a more um, in a more uh, serious way than it's done right now. Because it feels like the administration is playing this game where we don't want to piece Putin off too much, you know, maybe we can still uh, deal with him, maybe we still can attract him back into to become our partner. I don't think that is possible. And it's also important to realize that the Kremlin elites view the US as fundamental geopolitical foe, like long-term uh, challenge, the threat, and they will be fighting, they will continue doing what they're doing, all the bad things that they're doing, interfering with the election, whatnot. So on the broader scale, I think there must be a fundamental rethinking the way the current uh, regime in Russia is seen, and also understanding the sort of challenges and threats it represents to the US on the foreign stage, but also increasingly domestically, given all the electoral interference ongoing, even in 2020, where she had a report published about that just recently. Uh, the other uh, development, much more tactical on the tactical level, 
is of course the reason uh, and was uh, an issue that a lot of people were concerned about is of course the compliance of by the big tech with the, uh, with the rules imposed by the uh, Kremlin uh, recently. This is very unfortunate, just a reminder to our audience that uh, Google and Apple complied with the requirement of the Kremlin to take away uh, the applications about the smart vote campaign, right, pushed forward by uh, the opposition in Russia. Uh, that is not the news. They usually comply uh, with the requirements of uh, less democratic regimes, so to speak, uh, but whether that's a good thing and what it means for the freedom of internet, for human rights, for the fight for democracy worldwide is a different question. And I would love the US community to discuss uh, this issue, potentially possibility of some code of conduct or some kind of policies that may incentivize these companies to be less uh, com kind of complacent, less, uh, less likely to abide to the legislation and to the directives pushed forward by dictatorial regimes worldwide. So Dimitri, what do, what do you think? Um, I mean, what would you, how would you, uh, how would you get Biden to understand, as Maria said, that his administration needs to have a different view uh, on Russia? That I think Maria uh, made a point that, you know, that, that, that it doesn't seem that the administration is being as tough as it needs to be on Putin. Uh, we've seen examples now. And so what, so how do you think you would change Biden's understanding and Blinken and uh, Jake Sullivan and all those people who helped to shape that policy? What would you, what would you say to them? You're a very, very credible voice right there on the front lines every day. You're up there on the ramparts waving the flag. Uh, so you've got a very important voice. And so I'm, I'm inviting you to use that on our podcast. Give, give Biden a message. Yeah, but um, <laughs> some of ideas should be off the record <laughs> because that's why I'm, I'm not gonna raise some issues that are criminalized in our country. For example, discussion about sanctions against some personalities is criminalized in our country can can be jailed for this discussion but um there are some uh i'd like to share my vision about the how it works in our country for example if uh, the foreign politicians focused on russia and they raise some problems um so the, after that, Russian propaganda used that in order to discredit the Western countries, uh, accuse them of uh, meddling in our domestic affairs, and it works well. But uh, uh, I can say that one uh, one important event happened, uh, not the elections in our country, uh, when uh american it giant conformed to russian law and they uh, uh they banned the application of alexei navalny uh it was the the smart smart vote application um, um like sending uh recommendation how to vote and uh, it was deleted so but uh i don't know how to influence on this situation but the internet it's the only thing that putin can't control in our country he controls all media he controls like business uh parliament the parliament the court system 
oil and gas, everything in our country. But we still have free internet, or we had free internet. Uh, for example, when uh, when I when I left Russia, but I remained in the information area because information space because I still have a chance to uh, to communicate with my audience uh, from from the United States, from Bulgaria, from Kiev, from uh, all the country because of the internet, because of the uh, social networks, and of course. Uh, I would suggest that uh, the the Congress maybe of the United States can um, seriously discuss the situation because uh, if the IT giants if they uh, conform to uh, the authoritarian regime in all over the world, so it can lead to very bad situation with democracy, not in, only in Russia, in, in other countries, of course. Uh, but uh, one more vision of the future of Russia. Uh, I think that um, uh, the situation can be changed, uh, but we need to wait for the split of elite. So we can, uh, we can uh, remember the situation in the Belarus. Many people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people took to the street, but it uh, hasn't resulted in the, uh, the change of the uh, power in this country because the, the, the elite were, there was a monopoly uh, and uh, no one supported people in the street. But uh, Lukashenko has Putin, Putin has nobody. And uh, I think that in the future, where the social protest and the political protest will be united, it can uh, it can lead to the uh, the mass protests in the street, and it can be a trigger for the split of elite. And I think that it can be a real um, opportunity for changes in our country. And I don't think that the United States of America or the European Union can boost this situation. It will be the, uh, the uh, господи, усилия, the Masha, yes, efforts. It will be the efforts, efforts of Russian people and Russian elite. But uh, we still need the free, free internet. And uh, we were really confused about the decision of Google and Apple deleted, deleted the application because uh, uh, it was just the start of the uh, campaign against IT giants uh, launched by Russian regime. The next step will be the attack uh, against the YouTube, where we uh, have big audiences. Navalny has big audience in the YouTube uh, and all Russian politicians who are in opposition. We work in the social networks and uh, we can't we can't uh, we can work without free internet and uh, that's what the congress can influence on can i quickly jump in just to mention that uh there's zero doubts that the Kremlin was absolutely uh 
exhilarated about uh, the compliance of the uh, tech companies, and this will be uh, this has set a precedent. So they will now, from now on, uh, use this as a, a further reasons to uh, crack down on independent speech on the internet. Uh, most importantly, the freedom of internet is viewed as one of the threats uh, to Russia's national security. The national security doctrine specifically describes internet as a threat because, as I said, national security for the Russian elites is their survival and power. So they view that as the key challenge. And now the big tech actually the provide, provided the, Rus the Russian authorities with an excellent window to continue uh, doing that. Uh, the question may arise that, hey, but then what if uh, uh, Google or Apple do not comply, the Kremlin will just ban them from operating in Russia? That will be associated with serious political risks for the Kremlin. Just look at how many people in Moscow have iPhones, or is really at what everything that's happening over the Google uh, in Russia. I think the political risks and cost for the Kremlin from banning uh, uh, Google and Apple completely are too high. I think the big tech right now has some leverage, so it should be used. Yeah, I mean, it's such an important point. Is I mean, I think you know, looking from the outside, we long assumed that Russians. The, any Kremlin efforts to crack down on the internet and social media would be met with a lot of social resistance inside Russia because it was one of these last remaining, you know, relatively free political spaces. But it is, and you know, again, like the the frog in the boiling pot of water, it does seem like slowly, slowly the Kremlin is increasing restrictions and a and moving in a direction much more akin to the China model, and we haven't seen the resistance yet. So the window of opportunity, I think, to your point, Maria and Dimitri, is closing, and so to see some pushback from the technology companies. But Dimitri, I wanted to ask you one more a question, which um, you know, I think. It's been now, you know, more than seven years since, you know, since 2014, especially since we've been locked in this confrontation between the United States and Russia. And it's getting more and more difficult, I think, for Americans and American policymakers to envision what a future Russia could look like. What, what, how do we get to a more productive relationship? What does a more productive relationship actually look like? And I think I've heard that you've talked about this idea of a global Russia. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about kind of what your vision is for what a new Russia could look like, because I think, you know, for lack of creativity or we're just kind of locked into this confrontation, it's getting harder to see uh, what that Russia looks like. And so to hear your vision on something like that, I think would be really useful. I think that everything depends on the human capital. <laughs> and of course, uh... There is an idea to unite successful people, Russian people all, all over the world uh, with their achievements in different areas in order to, um, to participate uh, in discussion about the future of our country. And uh, we want to make research how many people left Russia and uh, how many professionals uh, do we have in different areas, how many scientists, businessmen, uh, and other and people from different areas uh, living out of Russia. And um, I think that we need to use this potential for the future. So if we have a, the opportunity for changes, maybe in five years, and of course, um, the success will be depend on the, the, the number of people uh, uh, with a um, with a proper mindset, uh, yes, pro-European people who, who wants Russia to be the part of the of the Western of the West of the European Union, and uh, I think that uh, we have we will have uh, 
the split of elite. And of course, we have a lot of people in the parliament, in the government, uh, who want changes and who disagree with this policy politics of Putin because uh, when I was a member of the parliament, I I talked to many uh, deputies from the United Russia, and I know that they have a lot of uh, they, 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 the children study abroad. They, they have the bank accounts and the property in the United States and the European Union. And of course, they don't want Russia to be isolate, isolated. So uh, when we have the opportunity for the changes, I think that all of these people can, uh, can make efforts in, in the democratization of our country. So of course, uh, I think that, and I hope that Russia will be the the part of the the world civilization, the part of the the, uh, the European Union, of course. And uh, um, I was in many uh, countries now this summer, and uh, I can say that uh, Russians uh, are very uh, developed in the uh, IT technologies. For example, in, in this in Cyprus, there is a uh, the как это не выражение как это вот московский сервис saying Moscow service yes there is a meaning like Moscow service in Cyprus Moscow service means high quality and the same in Berlin. So I know that Russian specialists uh, in IT, um, like of the top level. So, and of course, uh, in case of the opportunity in the, in the future, Russia will be uh, catching up the, the West very fast, in the first way. So um, I believe in the, in the democracy in our country, but it's very important to not to lose the, the human capital, those the people who are living in Russia. And that's why we need to organize a lot of projects to involve uh, uh, Russians uh, in exile in, in participation in these pro projects. For example, uh, I'd like to organize something like the big IT Congress in, in Cyprus to discuss the uh, the world changes, like the digital dictatorship, according to Harari, uh, and it will be very interesting to discuss this issue. Uh, I'd like to, uh, to unite Russian journalists and bloggers all over the world in Prague, for example. And of course, I'd like to, um, I will try to unite um, good experts to discuss the, the future reforms for our country, the future constitutions, uh, how to make independent core system, how to uh, create check and balances in the, the, uh, the government of uh, our country for the future. Uh, and I think that it's very important to start it now because uh, um, so we have the lack of projects inside Russia. So that's why we we need to to launch uh, new projects outside of Russia and to um, engage the people in in, in this work. 
Yeah. So, I mean, those such important points, and I want to make sure that we end on an optimistic note. We always try when possible, but I mean, I know, you know, from talking to folks in the administration, there is a lot of creative thinking about how to engage Russians and Russian civil society. And as you both have really um, elaborated and described, the space is getting more and more narrow. It's getting harder and harder to do that. And so Dimitri, your points about coming up with new and innovative ways to reach Russians and, and do that kind of engagement, I think is really, um, is really critical. So I wanna end on a final note because Maria, I know you've done such good research on this front that has talked about the importance of engaging young Russians and the importance of things like studying abroad um, I don't want to, I, I know the research, but I want to hear it come out of your mouth. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the rush, you know, the importance of engaging Russian civil society, young Russians, um, what some of that could look like in order, you know, to, to, again, in the context of trying to come up with new and inventive ways to engage with Russians and to maintain some U.S.-Russia ties given that it's getting harder and harder, what has your research said about you know, how we might focus some of those efforts? Uh, that's a very important issue. Thank you very much for bringing it up, Andrea. Uh, absolutely, uh, as our research together with uh, the last largest independent uh, polling company, Levada Center, also labeled foreign agent because of the quality of work that they're doing, our research has shown that uh, the younger generation is uh, actually growing increasingly alienated and frustrated with Putin, the regime. They understand that under current system, they have no opportunities and they're much more position-minded. The popularity of Alexei Navalny reaches 25, 30% uh, of this group, maybe more. Uh, the downside is that unfortunately, first of all, there's fewer of them, about 17%. And when we talk about right, younger Russians, we talk of the groups uh, below like 35 years old, approximately. Um, there's only about um, um, like 20% of this group in the society, which is way below uh, the share of the pro-Putin electorate, which is 55 plus. Uh, the other downside is that uh, this group's there's smaller share of the society, Russia is an aging country, but also they're less um, active politically in terms of their political participation. So their um, opposition-mindedness does not immediately translate into voting uh, behavior. Partly it's, it's a rational strategy because they understand that uh, it's hard to change things in Russia, but also it's self-fulfilling prophecy because they don't vote and so it's, it becomes even harder to change and influence the situation. But those groups feel definitely very alienated uh, from uh, the system and the search for new opportunities, the demand for knowledge, for information is huge. I face that every time I go to Russia, like people in the regions especially are so interested to learn about how things can be. In our own research, we actually show that knowledge of foreign languages and experience traveling abroad correlates very strongly with high levels of civic activism. So younger Russians who know more among the, these particular groups. So younger Russians who know more and travel more, they also are the ones who change in the country. So I think those trends should be encouraged and there's ways to do that, especially keeping in mind that these are the groups who are especially active on the internet. So it's harder to reach to them. Uh, there's obstacles that are as like, primitive as, for example, knowledge of foreign languages. Many of those, especially in the regions, of those people, they, they're seeking out information, but they have limitations. They don't speak English, for example, well enough. So those uh, things can be really improved. There might be some programs available over the internet, for example, to them for them uh, to train themselves. There might be other opportunities. There's a lot of people who are um, 
live in Russia right now. They're looking, seeking out some education training. So some kind of educational programs for those groups, again, who can maybe learn new things about civic activism, about democracy, what democracy is. That's, by the way, one, one of my biggest like shocks. Uh, when I, one of my trips, during one of my uh, latest trips to Russia, I spoke to some of the uh, volunteers in the wellness team. And even if they're inspired, beautiful, younger people, they have no idea what they want <laughs> for the country and they don't understand what democracy is. So these are very basic things that can be done. They can be changed. It's fairly easily to, out, to reach out to these groups. We have the tool internet. It's still not under complete control by the Kremlin. Those are the opportunities that I do not think are used enough uh, by, um, uh, by the US, by people who are willing to help Russia. Um, and therefore I think they should be uh, used at much, much, much higher level. This has been a really fantastic discussion. And again, ending on that optimistic note, I mean, I'll just say that I think that there are a lot of people in the United States who are thinking hard about how to get more creative uh, to promote Russians and Russian civil society, uh, engaging young Russians. And so I think the ideas that you've put on the table and Dimitri, your kind of idea about global Russia and how to bring together activists and thinkers and folks who have left Russia, those are some excellent ideas. And I know given that we're a transatlantic podcast, that there are also a lot of Europeans thinking about it and looking for opportunities for the United States and Europe to try to better coordinate those efforts, kind of recognizing that, that it, it's getting harder and harder to do, and it's going to take more and more effort and some more kind of creative thinking about how to do it. And so we're really happy to have both of your voices contributing to that. Um, and it's an issue, you know, we at CNES will continue to pay a lot of attention to and hope to have future dialogue and discussion with both of you as we're thinking through some of those issues too. So thank you very much. And Dimitri, it was wonderful. You know, I, we've never had the opportunity to meet, but to hear kind of your stories and your experiences and to be able to bring that to listeners firsthand um, is, is really um, incredible. And so we thank you for taking the time to do that. And Maria, we're looking forward to more collaboration in the future. So thank you to both of you. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, very ins inspirational. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrea and Jim, for raising these very important topics. It's very important to discuss them. Thank you.